Hello and welcome to the EMS Nation podcast. I'm your host, Faison Arshad. The time has come, the bell has rung, CCTMC 2018, San Antonio, Texas. We've done it again, folks. We've assembled the all-star Twitterati, social media, foam ed, badass, pre-hospital, insert more adjectives here, it's going to be epic to do a wrap-up podcast for CCTMC Day 1. So without further ado, I'm going to allow the panel to introduce themselves. Hello, everybody. I'm Chris Fuligar. I am very happy to be here. I am a physician and a paramedic from Syracuse, New York, and a proud member and past president of AMPA. Good evening, everyone. I'm Kevin Colopy, uh, KT Colopy on Twitter. I'm a paramedic and clinical outcomes manager from North Carolina and past president of the IAFCCP. Hey, guys, I'm Cynthia Griffin. I'm with UW MedFlight, and I also podcast with Foam Frat at um, CMGRFFN, CM Griffin on Twitter, and I'm just proud to be part of the Twitterati. That's awesome. Hey guys, Sam Mate from University of Maryland and uh, Echo. Um, super excited that Faison invited me to be a part of this, and uh, I am a CCTMC virgin. Ooh, that's serious. Wow. Hello, all. Ashley Liebig. You can find me at Ashley Liebig, um, flight nurse with Travis County Starflight, and also um, author and podcaster for St. Emlyn's blog and podcast. All right. Well, just jumping right in here, we had a tremendous day today. Um, the opening session was done by none other than Dr. Faison Arshad, who happens to be sitting right next to me right now. His incredible talk was training the limbic system for high performance. And this was an incredible, personal, um, just an outstanding um, talk, and without any further ado, I just can't say enough of this talk. I will just allow Dr. Arshad to give us a quick overview, and we have a lot of feedback here for him, I'm sure. Thanks so much, guys. Um, so I had the opportunity to share a personal story from my childhood. Um, which was challenging to say the least and allowed me to work on a skill set primarily including cognitive reframing to sort of align past challenges in a way that's constructive for me to build my life and to build my family. So we certainly are aware that in the current age in society, PTSD amongst pre-hospital providers is at all-time highs, depression is at all-time highs, and what I was looking for is a modality to integrate the various components of our brain looking at the human evolutionary history over time. So the quick framework is uh, Homo sapiens has been on the planet for over 250,000 years, but nevertheless we have a relativity bias, meaning our oldest living relative may be somewhere on the order of 80 to 90 years. So considering all the stimuli that we are subjected to on a daily basis, we just have to remember that our brain is several hundred thousand years old and it's designed for one specific purpose, and that is survival. 
And our survival mechanism is mediated by the limbic system, which, as many folks know, is responsible for fight, flight, or freeze. And that correlates in many ways to the increasing prevalence of depression, anxiety, and PTSD in the general U.S. population, as well as amongst uh, pre-hospital providers all across the country. So the framework was cognitive reframing and using the principles of strategy, story to challenge self-limiting beliefs, and ultimately state changes or dramatically changing your physiology to allow for behavioral changes to improve your life and integrate your highly evolved human neocortex with your mammalian brain or limbic system, as well as your reptilian brain or brainstem. So Faison, I think this is probably a really great opportunity for people to take the situations in their lives and you focused on finding gratitude in those situations. Cognitive reframing is an extraordinary way to look at something in a different sort of light and um, find the underlying message, find the good in it. So you led us through an exercise where we thought about gratitude. So placing our hands at heart center is what we would call it in yoga practices and just breathing while you worked us through um, a practice that I imagine was probably uncomfortable for a number of people in the audience and appreciate how you pushed people to work through that. So for me, it was extremely interesting and also beautiful to have that experience surrounded by a whole bunch of people that I'm certain were absolutely resistant to it. But I imagine that in the two minutes that it was over, um, they probably really felt very much different about mindfulness practice. One thing that you mentioned too, Faison, was that you had us all think about something that gave us a lot of fear or a problem that we had. And you talked about how gratefulness is the antidote to anger and fear. And when you said that, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like, that was just so smart. Um, one other major takeaway was uh, how you mentioned how every night you try to think about your day and you think about something that brought you joy, something that was unexpected and something that was beautiful. And that's just a real good way to like turn your whole day around and actually see, you know, that that beauty, beauty to death ratio. So remembering like all the grateful things that we have and that can really turn your day around when you have a really bad shift or a bad call or, um, so that was awesome. Very good. I think that some of the things um, that you started out with was um, how we sort of came to be where we are today, um, how our brains have evolved. But I think some of the most important things for me was what you did next. and. What you did next was that you shared a very personal story, and then you used that story in order to give us some tools that we can use in our own lives to go forward and to improve the quality of, of, our, of our thought process. Um, one of the things I think that we all face is a lack of resources, um, and it's so easy for us to blame that for our situation. And I think it was a beautiful insight that you said um, is that it is not the question that of a lack of resources, but of a lack of resourcefulness, to be able to take what you have in front of you and run with it, do the best that you possibly can and make it work. 
And a lot of the philosophy, if you will, that you were talking about um, has to do with the Stoic philosophy that you mentioned. Um, one of the basic tenets uh, that you put up there on your slide was Epictetus. And, um, you know, he started out as a slave and uh, his situation uh, was not what defined um, what he eventually became. And I think that one of uh, the cornerstones is to determine what you can control and what you can't control. And what we need to do is on a daily basis to focus on the things we can control and make the best out of it and be as resourceful as possible. I think one of the most unique things about your talk was you started a transport medicine conference and gave us all examples of very worldly, personal, tangible ideas that had nothing to do with medicine. But I think every one of us in the crowd was listening to it and linking what you were saying and how to control a situation back to the medical environment with which we work when we're taking care of patients. You were giving us examples how to look at a critically unstable patient without ever talking about medicine and go, okay, everything's going wrong. How can I control my emotions so I can take care of this situation? So you gave us a very vivid example in the beginning and demonstrated that when we let our emotions and we let ourselves get out of control, our limbic system takes over and we no longer have proper function over our ability to think and manage a situation. And we need to stop and reset ourselves so we can calmly and rationally work through any situation, whether it's taking care of our lives or our patients. Absolutely. And one of the inspirations for this talk was actually Ashley's first trauma patient overseas, none other than the war hero Noah Galway who lost uh, both an arm and a leg uh, in service. And I had the privilege of meeting him uh, several weeks ago in Nashville at the FAST 18 conference. And the energy and the spirit and the resourcefulness that he brings to his everyday life, not allowing his disability to limit his function, nor his relationship with his children, nor his appreciation for the vitality of life is certainly inspiring for all of us who um, you know, may have many of our faculties intact and remembering uh, that decisions, not conditions, determine our destiny. So it's all about how we interpret challenging scenarios or stimuli within our lives and how we can work that to better ourselves, better our situations for our families and to ultimately optimize our patient care to maintain our cool when uh, stuff starts hitting the fan. I think Noah, if he were here, um, would like me to point out that he went through a tremendous amount of pain to get through and depression and sadness to work through to where he is now. And it was the people around him and his support network and his support system that were so important to him at that time. And I think that that is what we have really found here in our phone community, in the Twitter community, in our podcast community. It feels like a coming home whenever we get together for conferences. And so this has become our network of support and our network of friends and the people that you can really reach out to. So I appreciate you sharing something today that was so personal and so 
honestly vulnerable, um, but the lessons that people go forward with from that are, are, are life-changing. So thank you for that and giving us that opportunity to hear that and relate to you on some level. Thank you so much, Ashley. I wanted to take the opportunity to thank you as well. For your talk, F is for feedback. And feedback is something that we struggle with um, at a professional level. It's something that, you know, you pose a question to the audience, is your preference to give feedback or to receive feedback? And my impression was the overall uh, sort of sentiment was like, do we have to do feedback? Um, do we have to talk about how we can potentially improve? How do I frame that? Does it have to be a shit sandwich? And I thought you brought so many salient points to the table that certainly are uh, applicable in a broad sense and, and definitely applicable in a specific medical sense that we should continue to extrapolate. That was good feedback, Faison. <laughs> <laughs> and F is for a lot of things. Anyone? I, I, took a, <laughs> I took a ton away from Ashley's talk. Um, as, as far as kind of trying to improve how I provide feedback to the people I work with and the people I coach through certain situations, I've started doing a lot of kind of clinical education and QA review. And that's been something that I haven't been very good at providing effective feedback. Um, I have a bad habit of applying my, um, goals and my thought process to other people and not kind of asking them how they, they thought through the process and expecting them to have the knowledge that's in my head. And somebody who's super junior may not have the same level of experience. And I have a bad habit of assuming that everybody's got thinks the way I do. And uh, Ashley's talk helped me kind of think through the process of how I can frame feedback to people and have it be more constructive. One thing you did, Ashley, too, that I thought was phenomenal was you gave us kind of like an outline for feedback, um, and that was super helpful. And it was talking about the facts, emotions, need, and plan. And then, even better than that, you gave us an example. Because usually you hear that. You hear the outline, and you're, and you're like, oh, okay, well, how would I address this? I had no idea. And you gave us, and I'm going to totally tear this up. It's going to be horrible. So just correct me if it's wrong. But you gave us the example of a, having a coworker who has like really bad BO, right? And what you said that was... That stands for body odor. In yeah. Case that. <laughs> yeah. Bad body odor, which like, I can't even imagine having that conversation. That would be so uncomfortable. I've had to have that conversation. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. Well, now I think I could though. But you mentioned in your example that you would state the facts. So it's come to my attention that you have an issue with body odor. The emotions, while this is an uncomfortable conversation, um, it does make you seem unprofessional and it's affecting your coworkers and possibly your patient care. You mentioned the need, so I need to know that you will address this before your next shift. And then the plan, you said you need to wear a deodorant or keep some in your locker. And that was just so to the point and like non, I don't know, not really subjective. It was more objective. Um, and that was just great example. So I really thank you for that because I think that will really help me in the future with my BO. No, with, <laughs> just kidding, with giving out feedback. 
I, I chose that because I think it is a really uncomfortable conversation oh, to totally. have, right? It's the worst possible scenario as a manager to have to be in that scenario and talk about something that is a personal or behavioral issue. We can solve clinical problems with coaching, mm-hmm. but when we have to talk about something in that context, it can create some challenges. So really just having a strategy to define the facts and do so in a way that's uh, that's non-confrontational and um, let that individual leave your office knowing that you still love them and you appreciate them. Try and get to the root of you know what their what their frame is, and that's what you were talking about earlier with framing um, what their thoughts are on it. And but really, just let's just get to the facts and through this, the nitty gritty of it, and um, solve the problem in and make it as easy as we can to do so, so that no one leaves with hurt feelings or embarrassed. We can still deliver feedback that is negative, but is also kind. I really liked the concrete examples here, but I'm going to take a step back here and just uh, talk about how you presented the overall concepts. And one of the overall concepts, one of the um, things that you had mentioned is to provide giraffe feedback. I really like that because the analogy is that giraffes have long necks so that they can see everything. They have big hearts, and anatomically, that is probably fairly accurate. And at least the giraffes that Ashley talks to, they speak in a non-accusatory voice. Um, So those things, I think, um, frame very nicely the next step in that you need to make sure that when you give feedback that there are four things. And those four things are, is this feedback really necessary? Is this the right time to give the feedback? Is this the right environment in which the feedback should be provided? And is are you in the right framework, and are you in the right frame of mind to give this feedback. And I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit about what you were talking about in regard to that, because I think that was great. Well, first I have to say that the giraffe framework is 100% stolen from the amazing Natalie May and Simon Carley from St. Emlyn's. And uh, that's where I learned this concept and it just worked for me. So the giraffe spoke to me. But um, I think if we are engaging in in a conversation where we're feeling confrontational or we're upset that we have to have the conversation. And so if we are not in the right frame of mind to provide feedback, then it will not be received very well. But if we can sit down and be ready with a plan for how we'll deliver that feedback, if we can invite people into our office and say, I'd like to provide you with some feedback, is it okay with you? And ask that question, it changes the power dynamic. They're permitting the feedback to be delivered. And then we can then we can work through whatever issues that they're having. I thought something actually that you said that probably struck a note with a lot of us because we do it every day is you asked everyone to abandon the sandwich technique. Don't bury negative feedback in positive feedback because it takes away from the affirmation you're trying to give someone. It qualifies it and it basically it blurs it and it's not true positive feedback. Makes it sound like we were being really superficial and. Well, I have to say something nice so this doesn't sound so bad. And just if it's negative, if we need to hear negative feedback, we need to be honest with each other and say, we have a difficult conversation to have right now. Here it is. And if we have positive feedback, just let that stand alone. I think that's an important message for us all to remember. 
I'm so glad that you brought that up. And I would challenge our listeners and each of you guys to go back to your hospital or your facility and give someone a compliment. Appreciate them. Appreciation says, I see you. I get you. I value you. But do that and watch for them to say, and... Because people are so accustomed to that experience where they hear something positive and then they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. So that's why I'm asking people, please do not mix the two together. Deliver negative feedback if you have to in a way that's kind and thoughtful um, and deliver positive feedback and let it stand on its own. That's a brilliant point, Ashley. And I think as EMS educators and leaders and uh, physicians and paramedics and flight nurses, uh, acknowledging exceptional care is as much a part of what we should be doing on a day-to-day basis as is correcting potentially medically deficient care. And we certainly do not hold uh, that framework to the same standard. And I think it's incredibly helpful to acknowledge, appreciate, and really uh, you know, bring to the forefront care that's exceptional, uh, care that's highly empathic, care that is a compassionate and uh, you know putting the patient at the center of our framework and model and uh, bringing those experiences to light and really highlighting uh, folks who are doing a tremendous job, I think goes a long way to building the team as well as to sort of mitigating or softening the blow when you do have some constructive criticism. I'm curious, taking a tangent off of your talk, since this is a clinical conference, how many people in this group in your QA feedback loops, when, you ha- when you're when you doing chart reviews, have a process simply to say thank you to someone of nice job, or are all the loops met designed to catch and manage errors? Uh, sometimes it's nice just to have those pieces in place where you send someone a note that says, you did a great job with this. You don't have to say it wasn't perfect because you gave the blood too slow or too fast, or you could have used an 18 gauge instead of a, t- we always can find the nitpicks, but just to send that nice job. Is that something that everyone's doing or is that not that common? I don't know if it's common or not. It's common in Cincinnati. Uh, I, I work really hard to, uh, to do exactly what you just said. And, uh, and, and just whether it's in an, a QA email or in the form of the formal monthly QA conference that we have, just putting a case out there as this was essentially perfect, world-class, awesome job. So right on. And then for the emergency physicians who are dealing with ground 911 crews, um, acknowledging exceptional care in the form of a letter, I know has a tremendous impact on the paramedics and EMTs because it goes into their personal files. It's acknowledged by their field training officers and kicked up the chain of command and really inspires them to go above and beyond the next time they're caring for a critically ill patient. One of the things we've done at Hanover down in Wilmington for several years is We'll send thank you notes. We literally had handwritten notes to ma- mail to their home address when they do something great. We just we send a quick note in the email. And I've found staff have later brought in 15, 20 notes that they've gotten over the past few years. You don't hear about it, but you don't realize how far that can go to really bring someone back up in the daily grind. I love that. We spend a lot of time in um, our staff meetings recognizing amazing and awesome. And so we do that in front of everyone for a group. But the thing that I think if we can work at being better at feedback, the, when you know that you have achieved is when someone says to you after you've given them feedback or negative feedback, especially, I appreciate that. Thanks for the feedback. Then you know you've won.
Feedback is challenging. And when we're talking about the American Heart Association and pulseless electrical activity, there is a fair amount of feedback we have for providers blindly following a clinical algorithm. Mike Barrier, uh, who tweets under Crit Care Excel, did an exceptional job in breaking down our algorithmic approach to PEA, challenging norms, and really digging into reversible causes and etiologies of pulseless electrical activity without blindly jumping into an algorithm where you're doing chest compressions and not really looking for reversible causes. Faizan, I've got some feedback for you. You are the master of the segue. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. Um, no, you're absolutely right. So Barrier had me uh, almost wanting to give him a standing ovation afterward. And basically his point was, A, not all PEA is PEA, and B, not all PEA is the same, even if it is real PEA. And so first, we need to make sure that it's real uh, because a lot of those people are just hypotensive and they're not dead. And then secondly, if it is real, we, we need to uh, not just throw it all into the same basket. Uh, and he did suggest uh, an algorithm which has uh, been very useful in my practice, which has taken a look at the width of the QRS and forming a differential diagnosis that differs significantly between narrow versus wide QRS. Can you expound upon that further in regards to narrow complex PEA versus wide complex PEA? What's your general clinical approach? Well, in general, if it's wide, uh, it is more likely to be uh, tox-induced uh, or metabolic, such as hyper-K. And so in general, I'm thinking uh, about being more aggressive with bicarbon calcium in those cases. Still taking into account, of course, the, the whole overall picture otherwise. Um, that's not to say that wide complex PEA couldn't be something like trauma or hypovolemia, but it's more likely to be tox or metabolic. On the other hand, if it is a narrow complex uh, PEA, then I'm thinking very much about hypovolemia, hemorrhage, uh, or something obstructive such as uh, tension pneumothorax or tamponade or pulmonary embolus. One of the things Michael talked about that was really interesting that I think <clears throat> solidified this for a lot of us was that if you just use the AHA's algorithm and you go through the H's and T's, you're only going to catch about 54% of the causes of PEA. And basically saying you've got a 50-50 shot if you just follow the algorithm that it's going to be completely useless because you aren't actually treating the patient. You're treating a rhythm instead of treating the whole picture and challenged everyone to think critically about what you are managing rather than what rhythm am I managing? Yeah, I think that was a disturbing statistic for me and kind of feeds back into how I'd like to believe that I practice in that we're not practicing cookbook medicine. We, we're all critical care clinicians and we make decisions based on the information we're given from the patient, the diagnostics we get. And uh, the big thing I took away from uh, his talk as well was the up and coming trend of ultrasound. I think ultrasound, I was saying to Faison earlier today, I bet you in five years, he's going to ask that same question. Everybody in the room is going to raise their hand. Uh, I truly believe ultrasound is the way of the future, and particularly in EMS. If we can push those diagnostics as far forward as possible, uh, I think we're going to do a lot of good for patients. 
I think that one of the reasons why this even came to light in the first place is um, our poor ability to properly appreciate when a patient actually has a central pulse. Um, and that the fact that we do have ultrasound, especially ultrasound in the field, what we're seeing is patients who we think were in PEA really have fairly good, in some cases, cardiac motion. And in um, one instance that he cited, about half of the patients in PEA actually had cardiac movement on ultrasound. So um, these are all patients in which they can certainly have um, a treatable underlying cause of PEA. And if we can't identify the cause, he says, then how can we, re re how can we reverse it? So the takeaways that I got from there that he mentioned was to find the killer, to find the cause of the PEA in the first place. If you do find something, go ahead and treat it. Don't go algorithmically blindly chasing non-causes and f follow the rules, but throw away the cookie cutters. And um, I think that sums up that talk pretty well for me. Critical care resuscitation is, of course, a prime area uh, for us to explore at the CCTMC conference. And none other than Mike Loria, Spec Ops, PJ Medic, turned physician, newly matched to uh, residency in New Mexico, Albuquerque, brought uh, his experience from the military in regards to intubating patients who are critically ill and injured, and really honing in on the pharmacokinetics and the pharmacodynamics of the resuscitation. I think you said it best, Sam, we're not practicing cookie cutter medicine, especially when dealing with the sickest of the sick, we really need to take uh, a lot of thought, clinical acumen, and consideration, especially when choosing the particular medications we're going to administer, and more so the dosing of those medications. Absolutely. I mean, Mike made a, he put a quote up and I forget where I was from, just basically saying everything we give is poison. It depends on how much of it we give, uh, whether it's poisonous or not. Um, and this is what Mike was talking about, particularly with ketamine is, has a lot of, speaks to me personally because I battled this ketamine dosing pretty heavily within my program because it was a national set of protocols and they wanted to set a precedent across the entire country. And they said two per kilo. And that was, there was no movement. And luckily my medical director backed me a hundred percent, but I did some things that were outside of our protocol because I knew it was what was right, right for the patient. And that's across the board. I think EMS, we try and make, we try and put things to the lowest common denominator and exactly what Mike's to Mike's point, like, and what our point has been so far, we're critical care providers. Like we need to be able to make decisions and you stay within the rules as a, not a provider, as like most of you guys are in the room. For me, I have to stay within the rules, but if you have a good medical director, they're gonna back you if you're making intelligent decisions. One of the things Michael laid out that we don't think about when we're resuscitating patients is that all of our drugs, and he was specifically talking about our RSI drugs, in the hypovolemic shock patient, they are going to take longer to reach their effect, but then they're going to reach a higher serum concentration and they're going to last longer and they're going to last 
And they do that because in our hypoperfusing state, we aren't circulating as fast, so they're not going to reach all of our target organs as quickly, but we're putting the same amount of drug in a lot smaller quantity of blood in that patient in shock. Then because we are not perfusing to the periphery, we don't have the muscle mass absorb and the fat all absorbing the drugs that we're giving, so they're going to last in circulation longer. And we probably do it all the time where we're pushing our RSI drugs or we're pushing our analgesics to treat the patient, treat, treat the patient, we're not reaching an effect, and then all of a sudden it hits at once, and we're behind the eight ball trying to catch back up to what we just did to the patient because we didn't think about what's happening phys physiologically with our patients. I think one of the best analogies that he had for that was he was talking about how in Chicago, during St. Patrick's Day, they always put that green dye in the water. Um, and that would be like a normally perfusing patient, right? That green dye spreads throughout the whole all the whole area of the water and the water turns green. And then he said, think of that hypotensive patient, that really sick patient, as like a, a marsh, like a moggy, buggy marsh where you put in that dye and it's not going anywhere. It's just staying in that one spot. That really brought it home for me. Low flow. And then, of course, uh, since ketamine was the topic of conversation, he looped around and brought in excited delirium and uh, the potential need to actually use higher doses than standard, especially if uh, pursuing an intramuscular route for sedation. You know, to finish up your analogy, if the swamp was our low flow state, the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon is your high flow state, your hypermetabolic state, where you can't put enough of that dye in the river to actually dye it green, that you're gonna continuously need to be treating the patient and you have to increase your, not only your doses, but your frequency to be able to reach that effect that you're looking for. And when we talk about the age-old controversies as far as which particular drug is best to use in certain situations, and I think one of the more common ones that we often hear about is Atomidate better in shock patients than ketamine, um, is that the question may not be which drug, but it may be better asked what is the appropriate drug dose for that particular situation. Because in regard to the pharmacodynamics and the pharmacokinetics, these patients are in the shock states have a low pH, low, low plasma protein. And the bottom line here is that we need to understand, think, and decide, as Mike said. We need to understand the pharmacology, think about the physiology, what's going on with your patient, and then decide on therapeutic adjustments to make sure that your patient is cared for in the best possible way and avoid complications. Kevin, you've taken critical care decision-making a different angle in regards to oxygenation and ventilation, especially when thinking about exactly the nuanced approach to the resuscitation. When thinking about oxygenation, many folks will consider a standard nasal cannula, a non-rebreather mask at high flow rates or flush rates, or even an advanced airway like a supraglottic or an endotracheal tube. Within your service, you've introduced the high flow nasal cannula. How exactly did this come about and what were some of the logistics and operational challenges in incorporating this new technology into your service? Uh, thanks for asking. So a high flow nasal cannula, a lot of people often misinterpret what we're saying. Uh, it is not when you take a nasal cannula and you 
put it on a patient to provide apneic oxygenation during RSI, and you just take a nasal cannula and you put it on 10 to 15 liters per minute. That's a different process and a different animal. A high-flow nasal cannula is placed in the nares of the patient, but it's a completely different system designed to give anywhere between 5 and 60 liters per minute of airflow without a significant portion of that airflow being oxygen. It allows you to provide ventilatory support uh, to rapidly cleanse out and flush out all of the dead airspace that a patient is constantly rebreathing. And rather than have it be a large quantity of carbon dioxide, it's fresh room air or it's fresh air with just nitrogen and whatever concentration of oxygen you're using. And it provides ventilatory support to decrease the patient's work of breathing without having to increase the amount of oxygen we are giving to a patient. It's actually something that's fairly frequently seen, particularly in pediatric ICUs. And over the past five to eight years, it's really started to become more common in the adult populations as well. And there are just a couple of systems. Actually, since my talk, I've talked to five other programs that are here that have been using high flow nasal cannulas across the country as an adjunct for their patient care. I think HFNC is a fantastic tool in your armamentarium for dealing with a patient that may require a touch of ventilatory support and is certainly hypoxic. Um, in your talk, Kevin, you discussed some potential indications for HFNC. Do you mind going over those? Sure. You know, the most common indication that a patient may benefit from a high flow nasal cannula is simply that you can visually see they have an increased work of breathing. If they have accessory muscle use, they have shortened sentences. They're whispering. Whispering is a sign that you can't generate the force of air past your vocal cords because you aren't moving a lot of air through your respiratory system. In any of those situations, that patient can aid and benefit from additional ventilatory support. Whether or not you need to use a CPAP system or a BiPAP system may not be necessary, but you can back it off and simply use a high-flow nasal cannula to help reduce their work of breathing. You don't necessarily need to look at oxygen levels to be able to make that determination. You can physically look at the patient. Now, it's kind of unusual to employ or deploy rather uh, HFNC in the pre-hospital sphere. So how did that come about and what were some of the logistical challenges you encountered with training? So it actually came about because my peer at work uh, had his son require high flow nasal cannula during his hospitalization. And he came back from it saying, wow, this is a great adjunct for our patients. Why are we not using it? Our patients can benefit just like my child did. And we went about looking at how to add it into a system. And I made a mistake when we added it into our system. And I looked at it and said, you know, this is, this is a fancy nasal cannula. It's going to work really well. People are just going to be able to add it on. Patients are going to look a little bit better. And I underappreciated how, while a relatively simple system can be added in and if you don't really set people up for success and you don't bring it to the forefront of thinking on how to add it into my toolkit, it's not going to get used. And I found in the first year, about 75% of the time, we should have used it during our critical care transports. It didn't get used simply because staff didn't think about it, uh, that we really needed to spend more time practicing with it, talking about it, and introducing it into our high fidelity simulations so that staff began talking about and then practicing titrating and troubleshooting the equipment. Thanks so much, Kevin. I think it's that time in the evening where we need to simulate uh, drinking adult beverages. So while we had additional lectures to talk about, we are going to save that goodness for tomorrow's episode of CCTMC 18 wrap up day two. 
Thank you, everyone, for listening along. This is Chris Fulagar, Kevin Colopy, Bill Hinckley, Cynthia Griffin, Sam Matei, Ashley Liebig, and Faison Arshad wishing everyone a safe tour. <laughs>